On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I wonder what we would have seen if we would have been in that room with the disciples. I wonder what we would have heard if we would have been in that room, what we would have felt, what the environment would have been like. Because this group of of guys, they just went through their most traumatic and terrifying and heart-wrenching few days of their lives. They had just seen one of their closest friends, the person they looked up to, the person they had followed for the past few years. They had just seen him get wrongfully accused and tortured and murdered. And they probably were afraid that the same exact people who did that to Jesus were going to do that to them. And so they're in this room and you gotta imagine they're terrified of what might happen to them, but at the same time, they've lost a loved one. They've lost somebody that they're so close to and they're trying to grieve and they're trying to wrap their minds around it and figure out how to navigate this trauma. And some of them in the room, they probably haven't even come to accept the fact that Jesus is dead. And then as soon as they get to that point, the door swings open and Jesus walks in. I wonder what the room would have sounded like in that moment. If they would have just thought that they were dreaming or they were hallucinating or or it was some fake or what, because they were freaking out. And then Jesus, he showed them the proof and then he gave them some commands. and, And just like that, everything for them changed. There's a really heavy weight in that room because they didn't know what was going on or what was going to happen. They thought that they knew the truth. They thought that they knew who Jesus was and what he was going to do and what their purpose in life was going to be. And then this thing happened and they were like, man, I don't know if this is what it's supposed to be. And they had this disconnect where what was actually happening didn't line up with what they thought the truth was. And we've been talking about this idea of searching for the truth over the past few weeks, of 
the people around Jesus searching for the truth, of Peter searching for the truth, but when he faces it, he's got challenges and he's got fears, and so he, he rejects it, or our pilot knowing what the truth is, but being afraid to stand firm on it, so he just kind of washes his hands of it. Or Judas being so close to the truth, yet so far away from knowing what it was. Or last week, we talked about Barabbas, who had no idea what the truth was until it set him free. And now all the disciples are in this part where they think they know what the truth was. But in reality, it's nothing like they expected. And we're gonna dig in to that story a little bit today. Would you pray with me as we jump into God's word? Father, we love you. We thank you that you give us your word. We ask that you would just open our eyes to you today, that these wouldn't just be things that we read or that we hear and we know in our head, but they would be things that we take to heart and that impact the way that we live our lives today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives. God, speak to us, speak truth to us today as we search for it. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, amen. If, if uh, I don't know you, my name is Jordan. I am the college pastor here. You may recognize me from uh, just being in stupid videos here at the church all the time with little bunnies or wearing footy pajamas or whatever other things they dream up for me. I actually do have a real job here. That's not all that I do. It's most of what I do, but it's not all that I do. And uh, man, I'm really, really excited to be here with y'all this morning, except I know most of you are just going to be watching the Masters on your phone by the time we get to the end, but that's cool. Like, it's fine. It's okay. We want, yeah, go Tiger. Come on. And uh, I got to root for Jordan Spieth because his name's Jordan and my name's Jordan. It's like a thing. We're, we're buddies. We, we go way back. But this morning, like I said, we're going to continue talking about this idea of searching for the truth. And the disciples, they thought they knew what the truth was. They thought they knew what the truth was going to look like, but it actually ended up looking something completely different from what they thought. And because of that, they were in the wrong place. They were looking in the wrong place, and they weren't going to find it there. It reminds me of, uh, there's this time, it's I'm embarrassed telling this story. I didn't think I'd be embarrassed telling this story, and then in the first service, people laughed at me. I could feel it was at me, not with me, and I just felt bad. Um, so I was, uh, I was going somewhere. I can't remember where. I had somewhere that I needed to be, and so I was in a, I was in a hurry. So I was at my house, and like I was looking for my stuff, you know, like you got to find your keys and your phone and your wallet. And I'm talking to my friend Michael, and uh, I'm looking around, and I'm, I'm in a hurry, and I'm talking to him. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, man, I'm, I'm in a hurry. I got to be at this place. I, I, I'm going to be late. I'm running behind, and he was like, okay, cool. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm just talking. I'm like, man, I can't, I need, I need Google Maps. I need my GPS and I can't find my phone because I need, I need to type in the address before I leave while I still have Wi-Fi because if I get somewhere where I have no signal, then I'll, I'll, I won't know where to go because I'm useless without Google Maps. And so I, I'm looking around. I'm like throwing pillows and stuff through my house looking for my phone. And I'm telling Michael like, man, like I have no idea where it is. I thought that I just had it. I can't find it. And Michael says to me, bro, you're talking to me on your phone right now. Why don't you hang up and, and use Google Maps? And so I did. <laughs> 
And I was like, I felt so dumb. And I was like, how did I? It was one of those moments when, when I, there's, I have these moments when I do things and I'm like, why? Why do I exist in society? <laughs> like, what do I have to contribute? Really, am I a functioning adult? I don't know. But I get in the car and I'm, I'm on my way. I'm going to my thing. I don't think I was late. Might have been. I'm not sure. But I'm going to my thing and I was like, man, that was so dumb. How could, I, how could I not realize that I was on my phone looking for my phone? And I, I rationalized it. It might have just been because I'm not that smart. But this is how I kind of rationalized it. What I figured out was I think it was because I was talking on my telephone, but I was looking for my GPS. And yes, I know they're the same thing. Your phone does literally everything. But my picture in my mind of what I was looking for was something that did something different from what I had. See, my picture of what I needed was different from what I actually had, when in reality what I had was what I needed. I think that's where the disciples were, was the picture that they had of, of what they needed, of what they thought was going to happen, of what they thought the truth was going to be, was completely different from how things actually were. And so they were looking in the wrong places when in reality the truth was right in front of them. And so Jesus, he shows up and, and he kind of blows them away and he gives them some truths and kind of gives them this purpose to run after for the rest of their lives. And so I know you saw it on, on the video a second ago, but it, if you're okay with it, I kind of want to just walk through this scripture and kind of break it apart and work through what I think we can learn and what I think God wants to teach us through this story this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to John chapter 20, verse 19. John chapter 20. Verse 19, so it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews. I want to point something out here. The doors were locked. Why do you think they were locked? Well, it says, for fear of the Jews. See, the disciples, they were scared. They were terrified. They had no idea what was going on. They just saw Jesus getting murdered. You could feel the tension in the room. They, they didn't know what to do, and so they locked a door, and they hid. And they hid in a room, and they, and they just were like, okay, we're just—I don't know what we're going to do. And I feel like if Jesus didn't show up, they probably would have just stayed there for a really long time. And I, I feel like in this moment, he probably didn't actually think this because he's Jesus, but if I was Jesus, and that's why it's good that I'm not Jesus, I would have showed up and been like, yo, I literally just went through hell and back, and y'all are just hiding in this room? Y'all know I'm the son of God, right? Like, I, I've done all of this stuff for you, and y'all are just sitting here? And they're all probably just sitting there like, yeah, we're, we're really scared. <laughs> We have no idea what to do. And so it was this weird moment of tension, and the doors are locked because they're scared of the Jews, that the Jews might attack them. And it says, Jesus came, and he stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. With all the tension and all the fear that the disciples had in this moment, those words, they probably had a good bit of weight. They probably had some oomph behind them. 
Like, oh, peace be with us. And then it goes on, verse 20, it says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So he showed them, he was like, hey, I, I'm actually Jesus. I have the wounds I, where the nails were, where I got stabbed. This is actually me. Here's the proof. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then it goes on in verse 21, and it says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So he reiterates again, you can have peace now. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then verse 22, it says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus shows up and they're in this moment where they're probably all panicking. And I love that he shows up and it's so tense. And the first thing that he does is he wants to comfort them and give them peace and a sense of calm. And then the very next thing that he does is he shows them proof that is him. Shows them proof that these are my wounds. I am who I say I am. He gives them truth. And then right after that, it says he breathes on them. He gives them the Holy Spirit. He fills them up. Shows up. He gives them peace and calm. He gives them truth. And he fills them up. I feel like that's what every encounter with God should look like. I feel like that's what we should seek when we show up to church on a Sunday morning, when we go to our group on a weeknight, when we open up our Bible in the morning before work, when we decide that we need to pray at some moment, we should look for God to give us some calm, some peace, to give us truth, and for us to be filled up so that we can go out and go our way. So Jesus shows up and he he kind of changes the entire air of the room. It feels like they're in a completely different room at this point. And then in verse 23, he goes on after he says all these things, and he says to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Jesus says, okay, I've filled you up. I'm, I'm giving you calm. I'm giving you peace. Now I want you to know there's a little bit of urgency there's some things that you need to do. Because like y'all thought that I was, you know, coming in, I'm King Jesus, like I'm gonna come in on a horse and we're gonna like go crazy and we're gonna do some crazy stuff. And Peter's like sitting there like, yeah, let's cut off some more people's ears. Like I'm, I'm psyched for this. And they're like trying to, they're like, they thought that Jesus was going to show up and be like, all right, time to buckle down. We're gonna kill everybody. It's gonna be awesome. And they thought it was gonna be like Rambo, Jesus mode. But Jesus says, no, 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 here's, this thing I'm going to tell you to do, forgive. Love. Spread hope. Provide peace. And Jesus puts a little bit of the urgency on the disciples. And he tells them that they are the plan, that they are the plan that God had set out, that they are the way that he is going to save the world, that they are the way that he is going to reach his people. But if they were the way, if they were the plan, how could they do that if they had locked themselves away in a room? How could they reach people? How could they forgive people? How could they love people? How could they help people if they were locked in a room? They couldn't. 
The room was safe, but the room wasn't where they were created to be. The room wasn't the thing that they had call, been called to do. In 1822, uh, a young woman, I guess she was a baby in 1822 because she was born then. In 1822, a girl named Minty Ross was born. Her name was Minty Ross. Minty's not a name you hear much anymore, so that's a pretty cool name. And when I was researching this by myself, I read her name was Minty, and I was like, Minty, I wonder if they called her that because she was so fresh. <laughs> and I asked myself that, and I said, no, probably not. And then I said to myself again, Jordan, you definitely shouldn't say that on stage. And now I've done it twice. <laughs> so Minty Ross, she was born in 1822 in the state of Maryland into a slave family. She grew up a slave. Her family was slaves, and she just kind of grew up in that lifestyle, working in the house, working in the fields, toiling away. And then when she was around 27 years old, uh, Minty's slave owner, her slave master, ended up dying. He got sick, and he died. And that scared Minty, because when the owner died, the widow couldn't keep up with all of the slaves anymore, and so the widow was going to have to sell them. But when they sold them, they didn't care about keeping families together. That would break up the family and send them to whoever would buy it, just kind of get rid of all, of all of the things that they had and, and break up the families. And so Minty was scared, because she didn't want to be away from her parents and from her brother's and from her nieces and from her nephew. She didn't want to be separated from her family. And so Minty decided, I need to get free. I need to break free. I need to escape. And so Minty and two of her brothers, they decided that they were going to escape. And so one night in the middle of the night, they left. They took off running and they went and they were kind of, they were working their way up north trying to get to Pennsylvania. And they were gone for two days. And then her brothers started having second thoughts. Her brothers got scared. See, Minty's brothers, they were like, man, what if somebody catches us? What if, what if somebody finds us? What do you think they'll do to us if they catch us? What, what, we, what if something happens back there because we're gone? What, and they started getting scared, and they decided it would be much safer and much easier just to return to their chains. And so Minty's two brothers decided we're going to go back, and they forced Minty to go back with them. And so the three of them ended up going back, and they just kind of blended back in into the house. And then not long after that, Minty, she decided, no, I, I'm not staying a slave. I wasn't, I wasn't born to be like this. I wasn't born to be in chains. And in, in fact, she had a quote. She said, I had a right to one of two things. I had a right to liberty or I had a right to death. She said, if I couldn't have one, I was taking the other. And so Minty, she decided she was going to escape. And so she left and she started to escape. And so what she would do is she would, during the day or during the night, she would run, she would go on trails, she would walk, she'd make her way through, she'd gain some ground. And then during the nighttime, she would hide, or during the daytime, she would hide in the marshes and in the forests. And Places that nobody else knew, but she knew those places because she had grown up in the area. So she knew the places where she could hide during the day. And then at night, she would run. And so she kept doing this and running and hiding and running and hiding. And eventually, she got to Pennsylvania. And she was free. 
and she made it all the way to Philadelphia. And when she got into Philadelphia, she was free and she was there for a short amount of time. She said, you know what? This isn't right. I'm free, but my entire family and all my friends, they're still stuck in chains back in Maryland. And so Minty said, I, I can't, I can't sit here and just be free knowing that they're in chains and, and be okay with this. So Minty decided, I'm going to go back and get them. So Minty snuck back and she got some of her friends and some of her family and, and she knew the path to freedom. So she said, okay, let's do this. And she snuck them out and got them out and they all ended up getting up to Philadelphia. And then she got up and she was like, you know what? I got them out, but I know there's more people down there in chains and I'm not, I don't feel okay just sitting here in my freedom knowing other people aren't free. So I'm gonna go back and I'm going to get more people. And Minty went and got more people and kept going back and getting more people. And Minty ended up saving over 70 slaves and bringing them to the north. And over 60 more slaves, she gave them specific instructions and told them, hey, this is how you do this, and gave them step-by-step instructions and directions on how to do it. Minty... Minty Ross, through marriage and name change as she got older, she stopped going by Minty Ross. She started going by Harriet, and then she got married and got the last name Tubman. Her name is Harriet Tubman. You've heard of her before. She was known as Moses because she led so many people to freedom. I don't think that I would have blamed Harriet or Minty if she would have gotten to Philadelphia and said, I'm free, time for a new life and just gone on with their life. I don't think I could have blamed her because I would have been like, yeah, good for you, new beginnings. But Minty realized that her freedom meant that she was able to get something for somebody else because she knew the path to freedom. She could help somebody else get out. Because she was set free, she could set somebody else free. So she decided to go back and get more people, even though it was dangerous and even though it was scary. She knew that because she had been set free, she could set other people free. See, she could have easily gotten to Philadelphia and hidden and said, I don't want anybody to be able to find me. She could have locked herself away, but instead she decided to give herself away. And if you're in this room and you have your faith in Jesus Christ, your freedom has been bought for you. But so many of us are like those disciples, locking ourselves away in a room, when in reality, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be giving ourselves away. Here's the truth this morning. If you catch nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this and know this. Jesus didn't buy your freedom so you could lock yourself away. He did it so you could give yourself away. Jesus didn't buy your freedom so you could lock yourself away, but so that you could give yourself away. Because you now know the path to freedom, you can lead somebody else through it. Because you now know the struggles, you can lead somebody else through them. Your freedom enables you to set somebody else free. But I think so often we're like those disciples. And we've been set free, but we lock ourselves away and we huddle up and we're just together. And the disciples, they were just kind of there and they huddled up together 
And if they would have just continued doing what they were doing, then what they probably would have done is they probably would have gone home at some point, but then they probably would all come back together. And, you know, maybe they go off and do different things, but they would have just come back together and they would have huddled up and they would have stayed huddled up. And huddling up is great when you need encouragement, when you need strategy, when you need help. Well, let me ask you something. If your favorite football team, if the Georgia Bulldogs, when they showed up for their first game this fall, if they went out on the field and for the first play, they went out and they huddled up, they got in, all right, we're running this play. Love you guys. Worked hard all offseason. Let's go win. And they huddled up and they're like, all right. And they just stayed there. And they never broke the huddle. And they never went and lined up and they never played. If they would have just stayed in the huddle, what would happen? Well, they'd get a penalty and they'd push them back. And eventually they just keep getting penalties and they keep getting pushed back and they'd make no progress. They would never actually play the game. See, huddling up is great, but why do you huddle up? So that you can play the game. But I feel like a lot of us in 2018 as Christians, we love huddling up. We don't like playing the game. We love huddling up. We come to church and we're like, yes, encouragement, strategy, love it. And then when it gets to a real life situation where it's time for you to play the game of being a Christian, oh, ooh, I'm gonna go back to my huddle. I'm gonna go back to my group. I'm gonna go back to my Bible study. I'm gonna go back to this huddle. See, huddles are great, but you have to play the game can't lock yourself away. You have to give yourself away. And so when Jesus shows up, he kind of shatters this tension in the room. He shatters what they thought the truth was in the room. And he ends up giving the disciples some truths that they can walk with. Because there's this whole underlying truth that he didn't buy your freedom so that you could lock yourself away, but so you could give yourself away. But with that, he gives them three things that build upon each other, that kind of give them direction, and, and it gives them hope, and it gives them what they needed to move forward. So I want to walk through with you the three truths that Jesus gives to his disciples, and the three truths that I truly believe that he gives to you this morning if you uh, have put your faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the first of those three truths. It's number one, you have peace with God. You have peace with God. John chapter 20, verse 19, as soon as Jesus walks in, it says he walks in, the doors were locked, the disciples were there, they were scared of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. He said, peace be with you. I think he said that for two reasons. I think one, he could feel that they were all really anxious and they were scared and they were terrified. And he was trying to, hey, calm down, you're good. But two, I think he was making a theological statement about their standing with God. I think he was saying, Peace be with you because you are now at peace with God. Your debt has been paid. Your sin has been covered. 
You are now free. You can be at peace with God because there was a gap between you and him. But I covered that by giving my life and raising from the dead. And so you have peace with God now. And that's the first thing that Jesus said. And he actually goes on to say it a second time. He says, peace be with you again. And I think he does that first because it lays the foundation for the next two things that he's going to say. He says, you are at peace with God that's the first truth. And the second one is this. You have the power of God. You are at peace with God, and you have the power of God. Look at what Jesus says in verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. When he said this, he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Something I want to point out. Jesus, when it says he breathed on them, he's not just like a close talker, and so he walked up and was like, hey. <laughs> that statement, breathed on him, you've probably heard it in Scripture before. It, it, it's got some deeper meaning. In ancient philosophies, in Christian and other philosophies and other ancient religions— the idea of breath was really important because think like way back in the day before we had like biology textbooks and the, the internet and stuff, you, if you looked at two people and one was dead and one was alive, how could you tell them apart? One of them's breathing, one of them's not. It's pretty simple. And it, like, it, it makes sense. And so what people started to figure out in ancient times was so if you're breathing, you're alive. If you're not, you're dead. And so breath must be the essence of life, which is kind of true, like in a medical sense. But they started thinking breath had this, this very big philosophical meaning. And so your breath was your life that was in you. So you breathe in and you just, and you're filled up. And so when it says Jesus breathed on them. It's saying Jesus gave them life. Jesus bestowed upon them this newness of life. How did he give them life? By giving them the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the presence of God that is within you. And I love the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Paul says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. It's a mouthful because Paul likes to talk a lot. He's run on sentences. But here's what Paul's saying. If the Spirit that raised the Son of God from the dead lives in you, what do you think it's going to do for your life? If it could raise the Son of God from death to life, what do you think the Spirit, the power of God is going to do if it resides in your heart? And Scripture tells us that if you have put your faith in Jesus and you are a child of God, you are stamped with the seal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is present within you. You have life. You have power. 
So if that power is in you, what does that mean for you? You are at peace with God and you have power from God. Why do we need power from God? Because of what point number three is. You have purpose from God. You have purpose from God. So Jesus comes, he gives them peace. He gives them power. And then he tells them why they need the power. Look at verse 21. He said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. How did the Father send Jesus? Well, he sent him as the Savior of the universe. He sent him as the hope of the world. So how does that mean Jesus is sending you? As the hope for the world. See, Jesus is saying like, yes, me dying on the cross is plan A. But you know what else is part of plan A? Is you. You being sent and going out and loving and spreading hope and reaching people. You are part of the plan. You are the plan. There's an eternal story that God is writing and you are the protagonist. You are helping save people. We have purpose from God. And then Jesus goes on in verse 23 and he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiven, or forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Basically what he's saying is this. If you, it hinges on you. You have the ability to change people's lives. You have the ability to create forgiveness. You have the ability to create hope. You have the ability to breathe life. You have the ability. You have the purpose. It hinges on you. And you might be sitting here and you might be thinking, well, I'm just, I'm just an accountant. <laughs> well, no, I'm just a, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. No, I just work in IT. I'm just a kid. I just, I, I'm just blank. Well, let me ask you this. You ever around people? Family, neighbors, friends, coworkers, classmates, students, players? If you're around people, people, then you have a purpose. If you are around people, then you have a purpose. To love them, to serve them, to give to them, to provide hope and forgiveness and light and to breathe life into them. You have a purpose. But so many of us are fine with just keeping ourselves locked away in that room. Keeping ourselves locked away from everybody else. I think it's so interesting that in the beginning of this story, it says that they were shut up in the room and the doors were locked. Because the phrase that it uses, that John uses here when it talks about the doors being locked and being shut, 
and them being shut away from everybody, that phrase is used in Scripture 17 times. 17 times. One time, it literally just means a door was shut. Like it was a sentence about a door being, I don't know. Two times, it's referring to this specific moment when they've locked themselves away, they've shut themselves away from everybody else. So that's three of the 17. 14 other times, this phrase is used. And what it either directly or abstractly means is shutting somebody out of the kingdom of God. I would bet that that word is significant because what John is trying to say is the disciples locked themselves away, but they were locking away other people from being able to reach God. Because they knew the path to freedom. They knew the key to unlocking that door. But they were letting it stay locked, and so other people weren't being able to see the presence of God in their lives. As long as we keep ourselves locked away, we're locking away other people from knowing the love and the truth of God. My, uh, my junior year of high school, it was around this time, it was actually about exactly this time of year, my junior year of high school. I, um, I was going through kind of a hard time. It, you know, looking back at it, it wasn't necessarily as bad as I had thought then, but you know, traumatic teenager, everything's the worst. And I was going through this hard time where, you know, like I was a little bit depressed and some things weren't going my way and I just, I, things weren't going great and we were on spring break and I ended up, uh, a, a close family friend of ours passed away. And then the very next night, my grandpa passed away. And I was a junior in high school and I was actually at a point where like, I didn't know what my faith was in God and things weren't going well. And when my grandfather passed away, I kind of hit a rock bottom where I just felt empty and I felt broken and I didn't know what to do anymore. And I remember we went up to Nashville, Tennessee to spend time with my family before my grandfather's funeral and all the family was kind of hanging out and talking. I was just really sad. And I went and I sat on my grandmother's front porch steps just by myself. I was just thinking, I was just remembering my grandpa. And I remembered this story of when I was around seven or eight, seven, eight, nine, somewhere around that age. When I spent the day with my grandpa, see my, my grandpa, he was, I guess technically retired, but he's one of those people that can never not be doing something. So he, uh, he had this business where, at least in the mind of a seven, eight, nine-year-old, the business was he owned all of the candy vending machines in Nashville. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and so part of his job was he'd drive around and refill these machines. And so he was like, Jordan, do you wanna come with me? And I was like, you telling me, I'm just going around with candy all day. He's like, yeah, and I'm like, I'm in. So I drove around with him, and we, you know, we went to these different stores, and we filled up the candy machines, and like hard candy, and all this stuff. And I remember we we're driving down the road, and we stop at a stoplight, and there's a homeless man on the corner. And I'm sitting in the front seat of the car, and my grandpa, he rolls down my window, and he goes, Jordan, I want, it, I want you to give some money 
this homeless man. And I was like, okay, what, I don't care. I got candy. I can, I'm fine doing whatever I want now. Like, I'll do whatever you say. So he pulls out his wallet, he gives me a few bucks and rolls down the window and I give the guy the money and he's like, thank you. And I'm like, yeah, you're welcome and whatever. And we drive away and I remember I asked him, I was like, Papa, I've heard, you know, sometimes you shouldn't give money to homeless people because you don't know how they're going to spend it, you know, and I don't know. And he was like, yeah, no, I, I definitely understand that. But here's the way that I look at it. He said, you know, I, I give him the money. He could go spend it on drugs or on alcohol, or he could go spend it on food or on shelter or on something that he actually needs. I don't know what he's going to spend the money on, but what I do know is that if I don't give it to him, he's not going to have the opportunity to get what he needs. He said, so I'd much rather just give it to him and let him decide than let me decide. We kind of talked about that idea for a minute and I was like, that's interesting and whatever. And he was talking about just giving to people. And I remember he looked at me, I'll never forget these words that my grandfather said to me. He looked at me and he said to me, Jordan, if you're not giving, you're not living. He said, if you're not giving, you're not living. If you're not giving your life away, if you're not giving your love away, if you're not giving your heart away, if you're not helping the people around you, you are not truly living. Because Jesus bought your freedom. He bought your life so that you could give yourself away. That's what living looks like. But we lock ourselves away in a room. We lock ourselves away. We get to freedom and we don't want to go back and get somebody else. We, we, we're comfortable in our huddle. We don't want to go out and play the game. We don't want to help. We don't want to give. We don't want to love. We don't want to serve. We just want to be comfortable where we are. But Jesus bought your freedom. Not so you could lock yourself away. But so you could give yourself away. Because if you're not giving, you'll never be truly living. Would you pray with me? God, we are so selfish in so many ways sometimes. Father, we are so oblivious to what you've called us to in so many ways sometimes. God, we are so fearful to step out and step into our purpose. But Father, we pray that we would run after you. We pray that we would give ourselves away because you purchased our freedom so that we could help earn somebody else's freedom. And so God, don't let us waste that on just us. We wanna keep producing freedom. We wanna keep producing liberty. We wanna keep producing life. And so God, let us run after what you've called us to. Don't let these words that we read and that we heard today just be something we have in our heart. God, let these be something that, that resonate, that, that steer us, that guide us, that push us, that move us. 
God, we want to give ourselves away. We want to build a life that is centered around living and loving like Jesus. So God, help us to do that. Help us to build our lives upon your love and give ourselves away. Father, we love you. We need you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.